Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 137 for April 5th, 2009. If I said to you, what does it cost to use Google, you'd probably look at me a little odd. It's a pretty silly question, isn't it? The search engine is free. Google Earth is free. Gmail is free. Picasa is free. The Google Docs application is free. Google Calendar, Chrome, Blogger, YouTube, all of them free. Or are they? Greg Conti, the author of a book called Googling Security, suggests that each of these services has a real cost, and the cost is measured in personal information willingly handed over to Google. It's not that Conti, who's an assistant professor of computer science at West Point, is anti-Google. He isn't. He uses Google, likes the company, but he is concerned that so many people willingly hand over so much personal information to Google and to other online services. Google probably has more information about more people on the planet than any nation's security service. Is this good or bad? Or doesn't it matter? I spent a half hour or so talking with Conti about his book and his concerns. The result was 20 minutes worth of audio that I think you'll find interesting, amusing, and maybe frightening. You have written a book called Googling Security, How Much Does Google Know About You? And from the title, somebody might think that you don't like Google, that maybe you have an axe to grind with Google. But if you read the whole book, that's obviously not the case. Google was recently chosen as one of the best places to work for, or best companies to work for in America. And I, I think that's for good reason. They, they're very innovative. They've uh, been very successful in attracting some of the, the top talent out there. Um, you know, innovations like uh, their 20% policy where they allow uh, people to work on projects of their own choosing really draws the best people. And because of that, they're able to innovate and come up with wonderful, truly wonderful products and services uh, that uh, make them the company to beat. And, and the reason why I chose them for the book, though, is that those products and services, the free online products and services that they provide, they're not really free. They, uh, they come at a cost of, of personal uh, privacy, personal information that we pay. So each you know, search that we look for is free, or, but at the same time, we're giving a little bit of ourself in return. I, yeah, I'm personally a big fan of Google, but I carefully evaluate their, their tools and services and use only a small subset in a very modest amount. They're not the enemy in this. They're, I just use them as an example in the book because they've got the best tools, products and tools out there that provide this motivation for us, users of the web, to disclose everything, nearly everything about us. And they certainly are, are well-known. There may be two or three people on the planet who have not heard of Google, but uh, it, it's a very well-known brand. I've heard people talk uh, when we get into uh, privacy issues, and sometimes they will say things like, I'm not a criminal. It really doesn't matter to me if I'm being watched. And I have to think that that's a little bit short-sighted. 
Yeah, although these people certainly may not be doing anything illegal or moral or unethical, they might not want everything uh, about them and their family to be posted on the web. Agree. I, I agree. I mean, there's several ways that information is, is passed to online companies, with Google being you know, really the largest one. Um, we give information away via using these tools, say email that touches a Gmail server or a web search or a place we look at using uh, their, uh, their mapping, uh, Google Maps. And, and that goes to Google. Uh, there's also web crawlers that go out and gather information. Uh, Google bots, extremely well known. It's an expected visitor. Webmasters try to construct their sites so they can court uh, visits by Google bots and to be indexed. Uh, there's information other people provide, uh, other users of the web that may link to in some way, you know, through a common email address or common name or a location or phone number to uh, to us in some way. So that that information is gathered. I mean, it's creating an information stockpile of of unprecedented proportions in the in the history of of mankind. So, uh, and information confers power. And because that information exists, many people covet it. And there's well-known examples of national governments trying to gain access to Google's data. It's um, coveted by, by many, by lawyers who, um, in courts that submit subpoenas. There's uh, business competitors, uh, internal employees. Now, you have to assume that Google has very rigorous balances, checks and balances in place to protect the data, but, but it's the existence of the data that makes everyone from individuals to corporate competitors to national governments worldwide, law enforcement worldwide, um, covet the data. And that's just not even considering the potential for accidents. That Just the mere existence of the data, I believe, should be cause for concern. I think it was uh, in about 1999 or, or 2000, somewhere around there, Scott McNeely, the head of Sun Microsystems, said something along the lines of, you have zero privacy on the Internet. Get over it. After reading your book, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that uh, that is the case. Also in 1999, and, and possibly uh, as a, a tongue-in-cheek response to what McNeely said, I wrote 11 suggested steps for keeping your computer absolutely secure and private. Just run through those rather quickly. I suggest discon disconnecting the computer from the uh, from any network, the an intranet, local area network, and particularly the internet. Uh, removing any network interface card, serial port, parallel port, USB ports, FireWire ports, floppy disk drive, putting the computer inside a windowless room, and on and on and on and on. So at the end, you would have a computer that was absolutely secure but virtually useless. In your book, you've ta you talk about a balancing act between ease of use and security. So on a more personal basis, what kind of things do you use to maintain security and privacy and still keep the computer useful? I wish there was a cure-all, some panacea that I could just point people toward, like install this and it will solve all your problems. Uh, that doesn't exist. So the best place to start is with the individual user. They should be aware of, of what they're uh, what they're submitting and that it, in, in all likelihood, it doesn't go away. I know different policies exist uh, with different companies for data retention, but the fact that you've disclosed it over across an ISP, across the network to a third party, you should just assume it um, doesn't exist. So for myself, I try and carefully consider what I'm disclosing. Personally, I use uh, Provoxy, which is a, uh, a web proxy, which uh, allows me to, well, one, monitor my own activities because I'd like to take a look and see what I've, you know, the kind of the sum total of what I've done, uh, but I'm kind of geeky that way. 
but what it also does is it uh, strips out a lot of the tracking tags. The chapter in the book on advertising covers the many ways that we're tracked. Um, I guess common sense or con- conventional wisdom says if you visit a website, okay, it's fair game. That website knows you visited and may have retained some data. But what some of the largest companies are doing are um, they offer free products and services to webmasters. For example, uh, embed our YouTube video, uh, YouTube being a a Google property, embed our YouTube video on your website, you get free content and a cool video. At the same time, because the content is pulled dynamically from YouTube servers, Google knows when you visit that third-party website. And, and it's not just videos, advertising networks, uh, double-click for sure. I mean, even the, the presidential website had embedded videos for a period of time that would reveal to YouTube when someone visited the site just because your browser loads the page, it contacts the servers, and you've left a footprint. That's something a lot of people probably don't think about at all. And, and on the, the subject of advertising, a lot of this is done to allow the advertisers to serve what they consider to be appropriate ads to users. And by appropriate, this would be something that they think the user would be interested in. Here's a, a silly example. I use Gmail. I open the Gmail spam box to see what's in there. It offers me recipes for cooking spam. That's probably pretty benign. If I'm looking for uh, at websites for auto dealers, I might welcome some targeted ads about cars. But you know, the fact is, Google and all the others, the fact that they can do this means that something is essentially reading the mail and examining the searches. And you know, that, that's what you're getting at, I believe. Yeah, and it's, it's that capability. Um, to profile someone to that degree uh, is, is very, very, I think it's risky. Um, I used an example in the book where a friend uh, had received an email and it had the advertisement that they had had a death in the family. And at the bottom was an advertisement for bereavement counseling. Since then, Google's changed its policy, and it's actually in, uh, in the Gmail policy that they attempt to avoid placing advertisements in that way. When you leave it strictly to the algorithm, you run the risk of connections that cross cultural boundaries that don't, don't go over well. Uh, but that capability to profile someone, um, the business model is target the advertisement toward the person. So that, that demands data, that demands information about a person. Uh, ideally uniquely targeted information. Um, I think rarely do people like advertisements, so that's a bit of a false argument, I think. Google uh, has as uh, kind of its motto that it uh, don't be evil or or don't do evil, uh, whichever it is. And you say in the book that you generally believe Google does mean what it says. But still, no matter how good a company intends to be, the simple fact is that it has to employ people. The people within the company can disregard rules or an outsider can find way to access private data. You have a data spill. Google has an awful lot of information that uh, certainly a lot of people are looking for. I think of it on, on the nation-state level. I mean, I, I would think they've got more information about people than some of the world's largest um, agencies. And that's got to be coveted. And I would just wonder if it's protected to the same level uh, that a nation-state would protect information of that magnitude. And in fact, I mean, you look at spy cases. I mean, we put tremendous amounts, of, a, a tremendous effort into vetting our employees at intelligence agencies. And, but every now and then, one of them, for relatively small sums of money, will turn rogue and disclose information. So you just wonder. And it's not just Google. It's, and, you know, there's a, a number of online companies, a number of large online companies that, to varying degrees, possess significant amounts of information about us. How well do they protect it? 
What happens if that company isn't doing well? Will they decide to dig a little deeper into the database or even if the um, and cross some sort of don't be evil line uh, that may that could move corporate uh, leadership can change corporate ownership can change and the data is uh, many of the large uh, mergers and acquisitions, I believe, are, are often about data. You mentioned in uh, Googling security the uh, what, what's pretty well known as the uh, Washington Pizza Index. People who work at pizza restaurants that are located near the White House or near the Capitol know pretty quickly when something fairly big is up with the government because they see a spike in orders. Well, that information used to be very limited in scope. There'd be a few people who know that, who knew that, the, uh, the people who worked at the pizza restaurants, and maybe a few reporters who had the smarts to call the pizza restaurants and see what was going on. But now people order pizza online. What can be inferred from the data we disclose online is almost without bound, honestly. And, and most of it gets... Um, the most, the highest resolution data, the the, the most uh, precise data, gets goes directly to the on co- online company uh, that we're interacting with, and, and inferences like that, I think, are are easily done now. And second, third order type inferences are still uh, very easily done, particularly with the large companies. Uh, you know, a company like Google has a tremendous pool of talent in data mining and artificial intelligence, and. What can be the connections that can be made are almost uh, off the scale. You mentioned the danger of using a web portal as your homepage, and that's something that I have never done. But as I started to think about that a little more deeply, I realized that in effect I do because when I start my browser, I typically bring up Google because I know I'm going to need it. Uh, I bring up Google Mail. And I bring up the Google Calendar when I open the browser, so that's a little different from using a portal. It's it's a heartbeat. If you have your uh, computer uh, on, you turn a, you open a browser, and you have a default homepage set to a, a, a portal site like Yahoo or to the Google search engine. I mean, every time you open the browser, you're uh, you're saying Google, I'm here, uh, or Yahoo, I'm here. You shut the browser and you say I'm opening my browser again, and your con- computer contacts them again. I mean, it's a heartbeat of your online. Uh, activities. And, and that's just one little tiny tidbit. I mean, you know, it's probably one 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 hundred thousandth of you know the total information you disclose, but that's just part of it. When are you at your computer? Uh, how often do you open your browser? And your browser passes just by default information. You, you buy a new monitor. Oh, you're now reporting a higher resolution monitor to via your that browser header fields that are passed to the web server. Um, your cookie is refreshed when you when you do that every single time. So that's just part of this overall one piece of the puzzle across many, many pieces that you disclose. One thing we haven't touched on yet is the ability now to store documents, word-type documents, uh, spreadsheets and things like that online, uh, Google, Microsoft, Zoho, and I think there are some others in that area providing online office applications so users can create, save, and share documents this is very handy when you're working together with somebody who may not be in the same office with you, but there's obviously a, a hidden danger there, too. You know, Not so much from Google going in and reading the documents, although probably they could if they wanted to, but just from that information being in a, in a, on the Internet, being in an accessible area. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, the power of these tools provide for collaboration is incredible. But at the same time, you're placing your potentially sensitive data in the hands of a third party. It's transiting the network, it's going to the hands of a third party where it's stored on someone else's servers. For the security conscious, that raises a whole host of questions. How secure is the data? 
uh, once it's stored there, who has access to it, how will it be shared, how will it be processed, uh, how, will you, how will it be backed up, will it be backed up on tapes, what promises do you have that this service will be there tomorrow. And there are stories um, out there about companies, you know, tools like that that people have relied on for key infrastructure uh, just one day aren't there anymore. It's a really complex problem keeping, you know, backup copies on your local machine uh, are in order. And, and honestly, for sensitive information, you shouldn't be putting it on someone else's machine. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I've, I've looked into it a good bit. And the, the law provides far less protection when your data is stored on someone else's machine versus when you store it on your own machine. Speaking of double-edged swords, Google is conducting an experiment with online medical records. Now, obviously, if I'm injured, I'm taken to an emergency room. I'd really like the emergency room doctors to have immediate and complete access to my entire medical history. But then again, same thing. It's out there in an area where it could be accessed by someone who I wouldn't want to have it. Google says the system is secure. Should I believe them? Well, as a security professional, I know that no system is truly secure. They can mitigate the risk, but there's no system out there. Like you were saying, going back to what is a truly secure system, um, it's one that basically isn't being used and buried underground inside a Faraday cage. Uh, and if, if you're using a system, if it's connected to the network and humans are using it, regardless of best intentions, uh, their problems will emerge. And, and so it's a trade-off, though. I mean, each individual user makes a call about sharing their data with, with somebody, you know, medical records, for example. Now, will Google go to great lengths to protect the data? I, I, in that case, I believe absolutely. I, I still keep coming back, though, to sharing so much information with one organization just should make any security-conscious or privacy-aware um, person edgy, that, that problems can emerge, if not now, um, into the future. Uh, as you, if you look at history, history tells us that data can be, um, information on us can be exploited, governments change, accidents happen. I mean, you don't have to look that back into history either to find examples of uh, abuses. In your book, you talk about the danger of long-term Internet exposure. The real threat, then, is not so much the individual bits and pieces of information. I go online, do a search for one specific thing, uh, that doesn't disclose very much about me, but over time, over several years, I could be tracked and an enormous amount of information could be compiled into a fairly effective dossier. One, I agree. And two, I believe it's not just a, a dossier that will be in a, a manila file folder read by a human. It's a dossier that can be used as we move forward to really build models about users and, and, and what makes us tick, what makes us who we are. And so it's the machine processing of that information that I find particularly concerning. Uh, maybe not in the immediate future, but certainly in the, in the not-too-distant future, the capability to model humans, be predictive about what they're going to do next and, and what makes us unique, um, that'll, that'll all be out there. You mentioned that there's no magic bullet to fix the problem. Do you see a time in the future when privacy will be protected in a way that doesn't really defeat the purpose of the Internet, that uh, we, can, we can have openness and, and share information but still keep things that we need to keep private private? Well, I'd certainly hope so, uh, but it's, it's, it's hard to predict. On one hand, you've got this, the Facebook MySpace generation who's disclosed, who 
seem to have different feelings about uh, disclosing information uh, online. And that's, not, that's information they just choose personally to disclose about themselves. On, on the other hand, I believe that they're researchers are working on tools that will help provide that. To me, it's all about balance. If the amount of data retained is the minimum needed to get the job done, um, that's a good sign. I I know researchers at Columbia University um, have a a grant to do anonymous search, uh, to do conduct research and figure out how how can you do uh, search anonymously and well. And if they can figure that out, and there's some talented folks working on it, I mean, that's, that's a sign that if they can make that work, then maybe some of the other things that are big risks can also uh, be sorted out. Yeah, it was a fascinating book. I, it almost made me want to rip the network wires out of my computer, but it was an interesting read. Well, I've spoken in a variety of forums. I, I like to speak at hacker conferences. When I spoke on this subject oh, about 2004 at a hacker conference, it was my first kind of foray speaking on this subject. And I thought, you know, there's some, some really talented, brilliant minds out in the audience, and they're going to tell me, you're wrong, this isn't a problem. You know, there's some solution, and, and just kind of, you know, show me, the, poke a hole in my arguments. And they left depressed, uh, which was not the reaction I was hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I see it as a big problem, and, and largely that's what, helped, uh, what prompted me to write this book. I wanted to get it out there. Get get this into the public forum. Get some debate going on it, and and help energize both sides to to meet in the middle and see if we can find some solutions before we we've disclosed our whole lives. Well, I think you'll scare a lot of people, but that's probably a good thing. Uh, I think that's part of it. That's Greg Conti, the author of the book Googling Security. If you read the book, it will make you nervous, and rightly so. But it's a recommended read. I'd give it four cats. Occasionally, Conti's concerns seem to be a little over the top, but overall, the author provides a reasonable, rational explanation of the dangers of sharing information with online services. You can find more information about the book at your favorite bookstore, or if you'd like a link to the Inform IT website where you can purchase the book, there's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The differences between Windows and Linux are stark. One Linux guru described the differences to me this way the other day. Microsoft assumes users know nothing and binds their hands to keep them from hurting themselves. Linux assumes that users know everything and allows them to do anything. Well, that's a pretty accurate assessment. Microsoft is perhaps a Chevrolet Malibu, and Linux is maybe a Formula One race car. General Motors assumes that the user doesn't particularly want to know how everything works, and they provide a car that insulates the driver from those workings. The Formula One race driver is assumed to know how things work, how to fix things when they don't work, and which controls should be left alone at certain times. Overall, Microsoft does an excellent job of placing computer power in the hands of the masses, but sometimes they go just a bit too far toward protection. Whenever I set up a Windows computer, there are three actions I take immediately to remove Microsoft's pause from my computer. There's that annoying pop-up. You have unused icons on your desktop. Look, Microsoft, I know what icons are on my desktop. I want them to be there even if I don't use them very often. So quit bugging me already. Well, the solution to this one is really easy. Just right-click anywhere on the desktop, select Properties from the drop-down menu, Then select the Desktop tab 
and click Customize Desktop. In the Desktop Cleanup section, remove the check mark from in front of Run Desktop Cleanup Wizard every 60 days, and that miserable little annoyance will be gone. Annoyance number two is a little harder to get rid of. Let's say you've created a new account on your computer for someone else in the family, or you've created a separate account for yourself because you'd like certain applications to be running in one instance and not to be running in the other. Whenever you do this, that new account will get an invitation from Windows, an invitation to take a tour of Windows XP to see all the new features. Well, maybe by this time you've been using this particular computer with XP for three years or more, and you don't want to see this idiotic reminder every time you log on. This is a fairly easy fix, but it does involve the registry, so tread very carefully. You want to make sure that you have a full backup before you start tinkering with the registry. Errors here can cause the machine not to boot. So you're going to start the registry editor. Drill down to HKEY Current User Software Microsoft Windows Current Version Applets Tour. The key may not exist, and on a new account it probably won't, so you'll need to create it. Under Applets, create a new key called Tour. With Tour selected, create a new D-word value and call it Run Count. The default value should be zero. If not, make it zero, then click OK. That annoyance will be gone. You'll find step-by-step -step instructions on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And then there's the Windows Explorer. By default, the Windows Explorer settings are about as wrong as they can be. File extensions are suppressed, and My Computer, instead of the Explorer, is the default, at least in previous versions of XP. The current version of XP seems to select Explorer by default. So if you're running an earlier version of XP, the first thing you want to do is make sure the Explorer opens instead of My Computer. You'll open My Computer and then click Tools, Folder Options, and select the File Types tab. Then click the File Types column to sort by file types. Scroll down to Folder, not File Folder. Make sure it says just Folder. Then select Explore as the default action. Apply the change. Close the dialog. Now when you double-click My Computer on the desktop, the Windows Explorer will open instead. Next, you'll want to choose the view type that you prefer. I like Details because it shows, well, the details. After you do that, select Tools, Folder Options, and the View tab. Here you will find a lot of options. I'll tell you how I set these options and why. First of all, I display the contents of system folders. Now, this assumes that I have the common sense not to delete system files and that I do occasionally need to examine what's in the system directory. Well, I do have the common sense not to delete system files, and indeed, I do occasionally need to look in there to see what's there. Next, I select Show Hidden Files and Folders. As with the previous point, I have to assume that I will not delete files simply because I don't know what they are and therefore assume they're not important. The only time you should delete a file is when you know exactly what it is and why you no longer need it. This is not a place for guessing. A little further down on the list, deselect hide extensions for known file types. Now this is one I recommend for everybody. In fact, this is, as far as I'm concerned, Microsoft's most idiotic decision ever. Windows is not a Mac, and Windows needs extensions. With the extensions hidden, 
the computer is much more vulnerable to social engineering attacks. If you can see the picture file someone wants you to click is really an executable file, you'll be less likely to be fooled. So I sincerely hope that whoever was responsible for that backwards default is no longer employed by any company that writes software. Make sure you deselect hide extensions for known file types. And then finally, you may want to deselect hide protected operating system files. As with the first two items, this assumes that you're not going to delete system files. You need to keep your hands off these. They are protected and hidden for a good reason. But you may need to get in there and see what's there, or you may need to do something with one at some point. Once you make whichever changes you decide to make, click Apply, and then click Apply to All Folders. Annoyance is gone. A few weeks ago, I described finding a video card with a non-functioning fan and two blown capacitors. As I was looking at the card, it occurred to me that capacitors are among the few electronic components that haven't gotten much smaller over the years. Had the problem been with a surface mount technology resistor, I might not have even seen it. And if the problem had been with a malfunctioning processor, I'm sure I wouldn't have seen it, unless the problem had been so severe that the processor had literally exploded. Capacitors, on the other hand, are large enough that some problems are immediately evident. You'll want to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website to take a look at some of the images that are included this week. All of the images in the section are from Wikimedia. They're used under the Creative Commons license. I'm enough of an antique to remember when the transistor was a big deal. Bell Labs had developed transistor technology in the late 1940s. By the late 1950s, transistors were round and about a quarter of an inch across. They were going to replace the large hot tubes in our radios, and within a few years, they did. It was possible to buy a radio that was no more than four inches tall, six inches wide, and an inch or so deep. Wow! Portability! One of the pictures included this week is a replica of the first Bell Labs transistor. Bell Labs received much of the credit and did much of the work commercializing the transistor, but the technology was actually invented decades earlier and not in the United States. The first patent for the field effect transistor principle was filed in Canada by Austrian-Hungarian physicist Jules Edgar Lillenfeld on October 22, 1925. Lillenfeld didn't publish any research articles about his devices. And then in 1934, German physicist Dr. Oskar Heil patented another field effect transistor. So Bell Labs got the credit, and they invented it, but not first if you can invent something second. Some of the transistors pictured are a couple of inches wide, and they were, the early ones, very large. So then we fast forward to 1971. A company named Intel released a 4-bit 4004 microprocessor. It was tiny, but it ran at the astonishing speed of 740 kilohertz. That's less than 1 megahertz. Inside the 4004 were 2,300 transistors and 640 bytes of memory and 4,000 bytes of program memory. Gordon Moore suggested that the number of transistors on an integrated circuit doubles every 18 months. Later, that was revised to 24 months. It became known as Moore's Law, and it has been true more often than it hasn't been in the intervening years. In 1972, Intel came up with the first 8-bit processor, 8008. 
It had 3,500 transistors. The 8080 was introduced at the same time. It had a 2 megahertz clock rate and 16-bit addresses. The processor was used in the Altair 8800. It's also used in traffic lights and cruise missiles. You'll see a picture of the 4004 on the TechBiter Worldwide website. By 1978, Intel had the 8086 with 29,000 transistors. It ran at 5, 8, and 10 megahertz. Wow, really getting up there now. And the similar 8088 with 29,000 transistors at 4.77 megahertz and 9 megahertz. And if you're old enough, you know that 4.77 number because that was what your original IBM or IBM-compatible computer ran at. Both of these processors could address an astonishing one megabyte of memory. The 8286, the IBM AT processor, came along in 1982. Clock rates ranged from 6 to 16 megahertz. By now, there were 134,000 transistors aboard. This was both the beginning of the modern era of computing and the end of the line for 16-bit processors. Between 1982 and 1989, Intel introduced a variety of 32-bit processors, but 1989 brought the 8486 to the market, clock speeds there, 25 to 50 megahertz, and 1.2 million transistors. 1993 was the year of the Pentium 1. came to market with speeds of 75 and 100 megahertz, and the ability to address 4 gigabytes of memory. On board, 1.6 million transistors. That 4 gigabyte memory limitation continues through today's processors, but that's about to change with the oncoming 64-bit processors. The Pentium Pro, that was kind of a sidestep between Pentium and Pentium 2, arrived in 1995. By then, the transistor count was up to 5.5 million, and they ran at 60 and 66 megahertz. 1997 brought the Pentium 2, now 7.5 million transistors, bus speeds up to 300 megahertz. Two years later, 1999, the Pentium 3 was released. 9.5 million transistors, bus speeds to 600 megahertz. And people were wondering if Moore's Law could continue to hold. Everything that could be invented had been invented. Or so it seemed. In 2000, Intel started shipping the Pentium 4, a CPU that ran at the astonishing speed of 1.7 gigahertz and contained 42 million transistors. In 2005, Intel started shipping its 64-bit processors. The Pentium D ran at 2.66 or 3.2 gigahertz and contained 230 million transistors. 230 million transistors in something about the size of the original one transistor. That quick history leaves out a lot of the other CPUs that Intel developed over the years and all of the processors created by AMD and the other manufacturers, but it goes to show just how much has changed in less than 40 years. Instead of 2,300 transistors in a CPU, we now have processors approaching a billion transistors in a single CPU. And processor speeds have increased from 740 kilohertz to nearly 3 gigahertz. Smaller, faster, more powerful. That seems to be the rule. Well, except for capacitors. Normally about now I would say in nerdly news, but I'm not going to say that. It finally dawned on me that the only difference between the articles in nerdly news and those in the main section is the length. Sometimes what's in nerdly news is news, sometimes it's an opinion, Sometimes they're pretty much unclassifiable. Likewise, the pieces in the main section. So I thought they deserved a more descriptive name. 
That descriptive name is Short Circuits. That's the best I could come up with on the spur of the moment. Maybe I'll change it again next week. Or maybe not. Did you have any close encounters with Conficker? <laughs> WCMH Television. Giant Internet worm gets aggressive April 1st. This could cause havoc from massive network outages to the creation of a cyber weapon of mass destruction that attacks government computers. 60 Minutes. One of the most dangerous threats ever, a computer worm known as Conficker, is spreading through the Internet right now. WAVE Television in Louisville said, Even if you turn your computer off tonight and don't turn it on on April 1st, it'll check the atomic clock as soon as you turn it on, and once it knows it's April 1st or beyond, it'll do whatever it's supposed to do. WISH Television, Indianapolis. On Wednesday, April 1st, computers across the world could be hijacked, and some say it's no April Fool's joke. And WFTS Television, Tampa Bay. The Pearl Harbor of Computer Viruses. And on and on and on. The TV noise programs, and I do mean noise programs, continue to spew their drivel right up to April Fool's Day. And who were the fools? The TV news programs. Fortunately, there have been voices of reason, lots of them. Two weeks ago, I said, for example, if you have a legitimate copy of Windows and your patches are up to date and you have a current antivirus application installed, you, your computer, and your computer's data are all probably safe and secure. If not, well, consider this a warning. So, have I given you the all clear? Well, not exactly. And privately, my advice has been this. Don't panic. Yes, you should have a backup. But then you should always have a backup. Yes, you should have a fully patched system, but you should always have a fully patched system. And yes, you should make sure that your antivirus and other protective applications are up to date, but then protective applications should always be up to date. So when April 1st arrived, Configure did pretty much nothing. Is it irresponsible to report every new virus or worm as potentially the greatest disaster in the history of the civilized world? Yes, I think it is irresponsible. It gets ratings, but it's irresponsible. About 6% of Conficker infections are in the United States. As I said two weeks ago, most of the infected machines are in areas where pirated versions of Windows are common. If you're honest, you practice safe computing practices... Your chance of infection approaches zero. That doesn't mean there's no threat. Conficker has infected a lot of machines, and those machines are under the control of the criminals who wrote the worm. Those machines are available to launch distributed denial-of-service attacks, or to host stolen software, or to do anything else the thieves want them to do. At some point, they will undoubtedly cause some disruption of Internet traffic. But countermeasures will be taken. In other words, we will survive. Steve Johnson, writing in the San Jose Mercury News this week, said that Silicon Graphics, once a company valued at many billions of dollars, will be sold for just $25 million. This is the company that was a graphics star, a company that helped create Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, and Star Wars. But it was also a company forced to seek bankruptcy protection twice in the past three years. Rackable Systems wants to buy SGI, which was founded in 1982. SGI makes servers, supercomputers, and data storage devices. In the 1980s and 1990s, SGI was a star that created equipment capable of displaying astonishingly fast graphics, the kind of graphics you'll find on just about any of today's home computers. 
More than a decade ago, in 1998, SGI started laying off employees and never recovered from that. It sold pieces of itself to Cray Research in 2000, leased its former office space to Google in 2003, and filed for bankruptcy the first time in 2006. Today, HP, Sun Microsystems, and IBM all make workstations that compete with SGI's much more expensive products. SGI currently has 1,169 employees, and if you'd like the complete story, I've got a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the Mercury News website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.